0: If you have your Bible, I would ask you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 4. We come to our second study and our our theme, uh, Building for Christ in a Hostile World. This is one of my favourite chapters in the book of Acts. We're not going to read the whole chapter, just down to the end of verse 31. So Acts chapter 4, from the beginning of the chapter down to verse 31. Let's hear God's word together. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, it's Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for they were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word, the word of God with boldness. Amen. Pray for God's blessing on this reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray together before we come to uh, look at God's word together. Father. once again we Uh, bow in your presence under the reading and the preaching of your holy and infallible word. We thank you that you have given this word to us in a language that we can understand so that we can read it and learn of you. We can know what God the Lord would say to us and we pray that in the moments that follow that each of us would humble ourselves And come expectantly under the preaching of your word. We pray, Lord, that by what is said here today, you would change us and shape us more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. That's our longing. That's what we want more than anything else to be more like Christ. And it's through the reading and the preaching of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that this will happen. And so we pray that you would be at work as your word is preached, that you would come upon us and fill us with your spirit so that we may respond appropriately to what you would say to us today. We pray for the children and their activity and for those who will lead them and teach them. And we pray that your spirit there too would be at work in their young hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So yesterday, last night, we looked at uh, the theme of uh, the task unfinished. Jesus is leaving this world, and before he goes, he gives his ta- a task, a weighty task, to his disciples. He sends them out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with a simple message to proclaim. And we looked at how Jesus equipped his disciples to do that. Now, those of you who are of a certain age will remember how in 1998, here in Northern Ireland, after some 30 years of violence and killing, we were asked to vote on a referendum that was uh, on the subject of what was referred to as the Good Friday Agreement. And to encourage us to vote in favour of this agreement, short videos were shown on TV and there were billboards that went up around the place And in these uh, advertisements, uh, a peaceful life was portrayed. Uh, A life without violence, without conflict, without suffering and and fighting. We saw a happy, prosperous life, people smiling and playing, children getting on well together. And at the end of the video, you may remember that a question was asked. I think the purpose of the question was to get us to vote in favour of the agreement. And the question was, wouldn't it be great... If it was like this all the time. You may remember that uh, little slogan. A prosperous life, a happy life, a life free from conflict, the sort of life we dream of. And when you study the first three chapters of the book of Acts, you might be tempted to say, wouldn't it be great if it was like this all the time? We see the birth of the Christian church, a new community of believers, a community. Of loving fellowship, united in Christ, zealous in proclaiming the message given by the Lord Jesus. We see a community where the Holy Spirit is clearly at work and many people, many people are saved and added to the church. There is no sign of disagreement, there's no sign of division, there's no sign of opposition it was truly a time of unprecedented blessing, and we can look at the, the, the time of, un, of seemingly unhindered advancement of the kingdom of God and say, Wouldn't it be great if it was like this all the time? We marvel as we read these passages at the impact of the gospel, everything seems to be perfect for this young, growing church, and then we come. The chapters 4 through 6 and you could say that in chapters 1 to 3 we see Jesus at work by his spirit through his church but in chapters 4 to 6 it seems to be very much Satan who is at work the enemy of Jesus was we heard this morning the enemy of the gospel and Satan hates the church of Jesus Christ we heard that this morning his goal is to destroy the church by whatever means he can. And in chapter 5 we see Satan behind a moral failure within the church. We see Ananias and Sapphira attempting to deceive the church as they kept money for themselves. They lie to the church leaders and they lie to God himself. And early in the life of this uh, young church the moral integrity Of the church is threatened and in chapter 6 we see grumbling and discontent threatening the unity of the church we see Satan sending his people to spread lies about Stephen and so grumbling and division and falsehood are threatening the church of Jesus Christ but even before we get to these things in chapters four uh, chapters five and six we see Satan already at work in chapter 4, stirring up opposition and hostility against the early church. Following a time of unprecedented blessing, the building work of Jesus Christ is threatened by hostility and persecution. Jesus had said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his building. Well, they're threatening to do it here in chapter 4 to six and I want us to look and to analyze the opposition facing the church this morning uh, this afternoon rather and to see the nature of the opposition to the gospel and then to see how the believers reacted and we'll see that the opposition faced then is not so different from the opposition we face now and so our reaction should not be so different from the reaction of the church uh, way back in the time of the Acts of the Apostles. And the first thing we notice about the opposition is it is a formidable opposition. Now, many, not many of you may know who Teddy Reiner is. If you lived in France, you would all know who Teddy Reiner is. He is our great Olympic champion. I say our, that's, yes. He's our great Olympic champion. And he's a judo champion. Now, if you were asked me to ask me to face up against Matthew in a judo Match, I don't know what you call it, you call it a fight or a combat or a match. Uh, I wouldn't be, without wanting to boast, I wouldn't feel I would need a lot of boldness to go head to head against my nine year old son, Matthew. The prospect of facing him uh, in judo doesn't intimidate me too much. But if you were to tell me that later on this evening I were to go up against Teddy Reiner, well, I would need a great deal more courage or a very good place to hide. Uh, he's a ten times world champion, two times Olympic champion, a completely different prospect of facing Matthew. And the bigger and the more formidable the opponent we face, the more boldness we need. And that's the case in Acts 4. The opposition to the preaching of the word to Christ's church comes from a most formidable group of men the most important and powerful men in Jerusalem they are the political and religious heavyweights of the day we see in verse 1 and then in verse 5 and 6 the list that's given the priests the commander of the temple the Sadducees the rulers the elders the scribes the chief priest Annas Caiaphas John Alexander and all those who were the family of the chief priests. It's hard really to imagine a more intimidating, fearful gathering of men than this. These are people of influence that it is really much better not to have as your enemies. And they are all, they're usually, they don't get on usually together, but here they're leaguing together against the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Commentators would tell us that there were about 70 of them. And here they placed Peter and John in the middle of them. We read that in verse 7. They set Peter and John in their midst. Two men surrounded by the 70 most powerful and influential men of the country. They're all gathered together in their official garb, all looking very angry. Verses 17 and 21 speak of the threats they made against Peter and John. Here are men who could really hurt the disciples and so here's a formidable opposition that's not all that it is it's also an angry opposition it would be bad enough to face teddy reiner if he were in a good mood but imagine insulting him and mocking him and then going into combat against him well you just don't do that and this passage shows us the apostles find, surrounded by angry people Verse 2 tells us that the religious leaders are greatly annoyed. Why why are they so annoyed? What has put their noses out of joint? Why are these people so hostile towards the disciples? Our text gives us several clues and several reasons. Firstly, there are theological reasons that have made them angry. If you look at verse 2, we see that the Sadducees oppose the teaching of the resurrection from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection they don't believe in miracles or angels or anything that they can't prove or explain and so they're they're opposed to this teaching they're angry about it and we see also that there's religious and intellectual snobbery and jealousy in verse 13 Peter and John are described as uneducated common men it's as if the religious leaders are saying how can these people with no formal religious training no History in a rabbinical school. How could they possibly be so successful? We are the educated people. We are the trained theologians, not them. This shouldn't be. And they don't recognize the authority of the disciples. They ask them in verse 7, by what power or name did you do this? And then when you turn to chapter 5, verse 17, we see that they were filled with jealousy. Before the people listened to us, they followed us, they they were our fans, they respected us. But these men have 5,000 new followers. We've never had that. We've never seen that success. So there's jealousy on the part of these men. And there's also a feeling of powerlessness. They're confused because there are things going on that are outside of their control. They can't manage them. They can't control it. There are thousands of people listening to the preaching of the disciples. Thousands of people believing who follow Jesus. And where is this all happening? In their temple. On their patch. They were supposed to be in charge. They were supposed to to rule there. Not these uneducated men. And so they feel threatened by something that is way bigger than they are. All sorts of reasons to explain their angry Opposition. But the bottom line, at the heart of their hostility, their opposition, it's the content of Peter and John's message. First, they preach the name of Jesus. Verse 10: Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him. This man is standing before you well. And this message is extremely offensive to the religious leaders. Well, why is it so offensive? Well, because Peter is saying to them, You are mistaken about the person of Jesus. You experts, you've got it wrong. People speak Peter is speaking to men who hate, who hated Jesus while he was on earth. They had killed Jesus. But in spite of their best efforts to get rid of Jesus, Jesus is still there. And he's more powerful than ever, and more active than ever, you might say. And you, says Peter, you condemned him, and you killed him. But God raised him up, so you acted against God. You got it all wrong. You acted against the Messiah, Of God. You killed the Christ. And Peter goes even further in verse eleven. He says, Jesus, this Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, who is which has become the cornerstone. You so called scholars of the scriptures, you didn't even recognize the cornerstone, the Messiah of God. You killed him. And then Peter takes it one step further. In verse twelve, when he tells these men that they need to be saved, that they're lost, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter preaches salvation in Jesus Christ to men who despise Jesus Christ and who killed him. And so, in these words of Peter, the sin of the religious leaders is exposed. Their hearts are exposed and they are furious. And what provokes their anger even more is that they can't deny it. Sometimes we see it in in, in children when when they're shown to be wrong and you see this... We we see that sometimes. And there's this fury... I know I'm wrong and I can't do anything to prove it otherwise. We see it in verse 16 that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. They'd love to deny it, but they can't. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Oh, they'd love to have said plenty, but they couldn't. They clearly see Jesus at work. And in verse 13 they see the assurance of Peter and John and they themselves make the connection with Jesus. They recognise them for having been with Jesus. But instead of humbling themselves and crying out for mercy, instead of being filled with shame and remorse, they're filled with pride and jealousy and anger. And they deny the obvious truth. The truth is right there in front of their eyes. But the reality is that deep down they don't want to believe in Jesus. They refuse to say that they're wrong. They refuse to repent and bow before Jesus. They see that lives have been changed. They see the lame man changed by the power of the name of Jesus. But they refuse to have that same Jesus change their lives. Instead of thanking the men who are bringing them the gospel, they threaten them and tell them never to speak or to teach again in the name of Jesus. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So a formidable, angry, violent opposition. So what do the disciples do? When you're told to stop teaching about Jesus, when you're told to stop saying Yeshua, wasn't that wonderful what we heard this morning? You can give me a bad mark if you want, but I'm going to keep talking about Yeshua. When they're threatened by the same people who killed their Lord, what do they do? What would you have done? Time to move on time to keep the head down well that's not what we see and it's immediately evident that the disciples are not intimidated by the opposition from religious leaders in verse 7 they're asked by what power or by what name did you do this and it would e- it would be easy for the disciples to have watered down their message here not to it ups- was so not to upset the religious leaders peter could have said It was by the name of God that this man was healed. That would have been true. Jesus is God. That would have have pleased the religious leaders. That perhaps would have opened a, a door for further conversations with the religious leaders. Perhaps that would be wise to just water down the message here. Don't get them annoyed, Peter. Just say it was God that did it. That would be right. They would have nodded approvingly. But what Peter says is not in any way vague or ambiguous. Peter could not be more frank or direct in verse 10 by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth and just in case you're in any doubt as to which one whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing well before you. Peter must have known that this message would cost him dearly. He and John are at the mercy of the most powerful men in the land, men who hate the name of Jesus. But that doesn't prevent him from confidently proclaiming the name of Jesus. And what is remarkable here, truly remarkable, is that the last time we saw these religious leaders gathered together, it was to judge and condemn Jesus. Now what was Peter doing while that was going on? He was cowering away, terrified that someone might ask him, were you not one of his disciples? He was denying his Lord three times. Do you see the transformation? How do you explain that this once fearful man who denied his best friend three times now announces fearlessly And with full confidence in front of a much more intimidating audience. What enables Peter to speak with full confidence, full assurance? And what will help us to speak with full assurance and full confidence when we're threatened, when we face that hostile reaction? There are several things that we see in this passage that explain Peter's confidence and boldness which I believe will help us as we build for Christ in a hostile world. Let's look at them together. The first thing is simply obedience to the Lord. Obedience to the Lord. At the very beginning of this book, Jesus gives a task to his disciples. We saw that last night. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They are to talk about Jesus, preach in the name of Jesus, announce salvation in the name of Jesus in Jerusalem. And so here the disciples are simply obeying Jesus' command. And that explains what Peter says in verse 19 where he says, Is it right before God that we obey you rather than God? This is a question of obedience. We've been called to speak of Jesus and we will obey. Jesus says, talk about me. The religious leaders say, don't talk about him. Whom are they to obey? When our world tells us to be quiet about Jesus, and Jesus says, you are to be my witnesses, well, we can't do both. Whom are we to obey? Proclaiming the gospel is a matter of obedience. So we see obedience to the Lord. The other thing we see, next thing we see, is a fullness of the Spirit And of all the things that we see in these verses which explain the assurance and the confidence and the audacity of the disciples is perhaps what we see in verse 8. So Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Here is the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Here is what Jesus promised to his disciples when he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And time after time, friends, in the book of Acts, We see that when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, what do they do? They speak about Jesus. It's very simple. Those who are filled with the Spirit speak of Jesus. They bear witness to Jesus. Look at verse 31. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. That's the role of the Spirit. It's one of the roles of the Spirit to... to Give us courage and boldness to talk about Jesus. And so when any Christian, we notice in verse 31, they were all filled with the Spirit. It's not just Peter and John here. They were all filled with the Spirit. So when any Christian f- is filled with the Spirit, we know he will know or she will know the Spirit's help in speaking of Christ. Speaking the word boldly. And so we are to seek and to pray for the, the, the fullness, the indwelling of the spirit. That same power that created the universe, that raised Jesus from the dead, the same power enables you to speak in full confidence. It transformed just as it transformed that power transformed Peter, so it changes us when we're praying to God and asking God to fill us with the Spirit so that we may speak boldly and then we need to live by and use the sword of the spirit the word of god and the holy spirit will work to embolden us in our witnessing for christ so we see obedience to the lord we see a fullness of the spirit the next thing we see is a transforming relationship a transforming relationship the religious leaders may be hostile to the gospel but they're not blind and they're not stupid Verse 13, when they saw the assurance of Peter and John, they were astonished. They were astonished, but they had enough discernment to know and to understand where this assurance came from. And we see it later in the verse they saw that they had been with Jesus. The disciples had been with Jesus. They had heard his teaching and seen his miracles. John had seen him on the cross, and above all, they had seen him risen from the dead. Risen from the tomb victorious over death. Confirming all that he had taught previously. And they had spent 40 days with Jesus. And this vital living relationship with the living Christ is evident to all. That's, uh, it accounts for this change in them. What were they like before their meeting with the risen Christ? They were hiding away in fear. What are they like now after their meeting with the risen Christ? After having spent time with Jesus and being filled with the Spirit? All these changes come after their meeting with the risen Christ. So Peter himself in verse 20 speaks of Jesus' influence of them. We cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We've seen him, we've heard him and we have to talk about him. And such is the impact of the risen Christ that being silent about him is really not an option. Being with the risen Christ fills the, the disciple with the desire and with the boldness we need to speak of him. And I recently had the pleasure of speaking, we showed you a photograph of her uh, earlier, I recently had the, speaker of, the pleasure of speaking with the boss of one of the ladies in our congregation a godly, Christ-like saint. And he spoke in glowing terms of how she glows and how joyful she is, how she's generous and kind-hearted. And why, he says, she's the sort of person makes you want to get up in the morning because you think you might meet them. So encouraging to hear that. And why is she like this? Because she's been with Jesus. Jesus has changed her. Jesus is still changing her. Jesus is using her to witness to people like her boss. Her life has been and is being transformed by Jesus. And it shows. And this dear lady cannot but speak of her Saviour. She cannot. Uh, when people spend time with her, they will always hear of the Lord Jesus. Always. Nobody takes more Uh, calendars to give out nobody takes more invitations to give out than dear Sonia and if anyone in our congregation has known threats to keep quiet it's Sonia and so we have to ask ourselves when people spend time with us do they recognize us as people who have been with Jesus people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. I spent time with someone the other day and it was thoroughly depressing. I spent about five minutes with that person and I got nothing but negativity and glumness and complaining about everything. Even Matthew noticed that person wasn't very positive. And the opposite should be true, should it not, of when people spend time with Christ's people. That person has been with Jesus. Speaking confidently about Jesus is often the fruit of a loving, close relationship with him. And when Christ is our supreme treasure in life, we will talk freely about him. We will talk freely about him. A transforming relationship. The next thing we see which emboldens uh, the disciples to speak is fellowship in prayer. Fellowship in prayer. Verse 23, Peter and John are released. What do they do? We read in verse 23, they went to their friends. They want to be with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They want to encourage them. This is their first instinct. And the group's first instinct when they arrive, what is it? Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Here's a model that we need to follow as we seek to build for Christ in a hostile world. Building for Christ can be exhausting, difficult work. And it is essential that we have a support network to strengthen and encourage We need a church where we encourage one another in our witnessing, where we share with one another our experiences, and where we pray for one another. No kingdom work will go very far without that. We seek fellowship in evangelism and prayer with and for one another. This this fellowship is so important. I think back to uh, days gone by and non-go teams there are few more soul-destroying things than to be sent into an area of tar blocks with a heavy bag of leaflets to give out and in these tar blocks you have to buzz to get in and you might not speak brilliant french and you have to speak you have to hope first of all that someone answers when you buzz and then you have to try on your broken French to get them to open the door to let you into the letterboxes to give out the leaflets. And it used to be that depending on where you were staying in the go team, you would be sent into these areas for three hours by yourself. I think this is like a punishment. This, and and uh, that, that policy evolved as time went on and people were sent out in at least pairs. Sometimes what we would do, instead of sending one person out for three hours by themselves, we'd send six people out for one hour. And the, the encouragement that came as you come out of one apartment block and you would see someone in the apartment block beside you and you go and talk, did you get in? Yes, I get in. I haven't got in. Come on, you help me here. And we'll pray together. And the, the encouragement that that comes, that you're not alone. And you have that strength and encouragement coming from fellowship in prayer and this leads us to the last thing that we see here in this chapter and it is an absolute confidence in God and in his word I wish I could spend more time looking at the believers prayer in this chapter with you it's it's simply magnificent but what jumps out at us in this prayer are two things absolute confidence in the sovereignty of God And absolute confidence in the word of God. And both these things help the disciples of Jesus to speak with boldness. The first word of this prayer reveals confidence in a God who is sovereign over all things. Sovereign Lord. This word is rarely used in the New Testament. And it's from the Greek word that we get the word despot. A despot. One who is an absolute master, whose authority no one can dispute. The disciples, the believers, could have started their prayer with, Heavenly Father, God in heaven, no. Sovereign Lord. In the midst of persecution, the believers in Jerusalem find comfort and encouragement in the absolute sovereignty of God of God. They describe God as the God who made the sky, the earth, the sea and all that is in them. Is that are they saying that because God didn't know he had done that? No. But they're reminding themselves in their prayer of who their God is. If God has made this whole universe, is God going to be intimidated by these little people here? No absolute sovereignty of god you created all things you rule over all things including these religious leaders and the believers see the sovereignty of god even in the midst of the even in the death of jesus jesus was not a victim of wicked men who were too strong for him he was not the victim of circumstances beyond his control if the rulers of the people's United against God and against Jesus. Verse 28 explains why. To do whatever your hand, your plan had predestined to take place. So God is using even his enemies to accomplish exactly what he predestined to take place. The absolute sovereignty of God. And if we as Christians are to face hostility threats, even violence, and we are, we will. Our sovereign God knows it, and he will work through that for our good and for his glory. He will do that. He always does that. Our sovereign God is not taken by surprise. He doesn't feel threatened. He knows exactly what is going on and he is accomplishing all that his hand and his plan have already determined our first builder in the project and Nantes was a disaster he just didn't ever turn up he lied to us he stole from us and you thought why would this happen why would this happen well it didn't take us long to discover why that would happen, because the second builder, it turns out, that one of the ladies in our congregation, her husband works for the second builder. And that husband is particularly hostile towards her his wife's faith. And so God sovereignly overruling that one of the most hostile people to our church ends up building our church and spending time with people that he was suspicious of, that he despised, and was angry with. And, well, he hasn't started attending church yet, but his attitudes have changed. We can see a softening in his attitudes. There are people that we would never have met had the first builder come and done his job And with many of those people, it's with them that we've had the best conversations about the gospel. And so, did we enjoy what the first builder did to us? Were we able to say, thank you Lord that this man has lied to us and stolen from us? No, he he, he was wicked. What he did was wrong. But God was sovereignly overruling for our good and his glory. And then we see confidence in the word of God. The word of God had already predicted everything. The opposition of the religious leaders, the death of Jesus, God had predicted it. Psalm 2 is, cited, is, is quoted in this prayer in verses 25 and 26. And the psalm explains exactly what is going on in Jerusalem. And just at uh, open brackets, the man I've just been telling you about, the, 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 the husband of this lady, he has come to church once. On the Lord's Day, when I was preaching on Psalm two, and the title of the sermon is "Why People Refuse to Believe," so he didn't. He didn't. He was he was raging that day. He was raging actually, um, angry, very angry against God. But we'll come to more of him in a minute. And this Psalm perfectly describes opposition—a world of hostile opposition to God and His Messiah. God's Word prepares us for this hostility it gives us a framework for understanding this hostility we read passages like john sixteen thirty three. in the world you will have tribulation but take heart i have overcome the word we read that and so we're not surprised when we see opposition there's comfort from god's word and so we read this and, and so when we meet hostility we don't panic we remember this is what God told us would happen in his word. God is right. God God can be trusted. And we, we don't wring our hands in despair shouting what's happening. And so strengthened by the spirit and strengthened by the word, we can put our trust in God as we speak the truth with boldness. So all these factors at work, the Christians in Jerusalem, what do they pray This is marvellous, that God would stop the persecution, that God would get them out of there to somewhere safe. Verse 29, and now Lord look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They pray that God would help them do the same thing that got them into all that trouble in the first place. Help us to keep on speaking boldly of Jesus. And God answers this prayer in ways far beyond what the believers could have imagined. The Christians are filled with the Spirit and they continue to declare the Word of God boldly. So I'm sure as you look at the world in which we are called to be witnesses for Christ, called to announce the Gospel, you realise that it's not that different from first century Jerusalem. And we often ask ourselves the question, why is there such hostility to Jesus? How can you explain what's happening in in countries like North Korea and China and Muslim countries and more and more so here in the UK and in France? How do we explain violence against the church, against the people of God? It's not just indifference indifference would just would let the christians just get on with their thing it's not indifference it's violence and hostility on a national level on a personal level why do people get angry when we talk about jesus i know lots of people it's happened me many times i know lots of people who roll their eyes and get bored when i talk about cricket but they don't get angry why do they get angry when we talk about Jesus? Why do we have ladies in our church and Nantes whose husbands humiliate them publicly because of their faith? Why not just let them believe their thing and get on with it? And the answer to these questions lies in the human heart. In the heart of every human being there's this struggle for power, struggle for Control a rejection of the authority of God there's a raging battle to say no to King Jesus in 1880 in France a newspaper was created by the, the socialist Louis-Auguste Blanqui and he called his paper Ni Dieu Ni Maître which means neither God nor Master he could have called it anything But he wanted to make a statement. No God and no Master. We will not submit to God. And I don't know how many times I've seen Acts 4 in the lives of friends and relatives. Just like the religious leaders, people who recognize facts about Jesus, they look at the proofs. They look at the proofs for his death, for his resurrection. They see lives transformed by Jesus. They see the Spirit of God at work and they can't deny it. They'd love to deny it, but they can't. And many of these people are sitting in churches. And maybe they're sitting here today. You see God at work in the lives of others. You know things to be true about Jesus. You see the void in your own life and you've no answer to the great questions of life. Why are we here? Why does the world exist? We know we're not just like animals. Why are we here? God has put eternity into our hearts. We know that life is, this life is not all there is. Many people in churches, many young people especially in churches, who know those things to be true. But despite all that they see, all that they know, they do not want to bow to King Jesus. They refuse to submit to Jesus. And when we talk to them about sin, people in the world and even in the church, when we talk to them about repentance, they get angry. Perhaps even as I speak, someone is getting angry. Don't go there. Don't go there. Someone Is there someone refusing today to bow the knee to King Jesus? You see Jesus at work, and you can't deny it. But you won't humble yourself. You won't bow to him. And if this is you today, I say you must come down from the throne of your life. And give that throne to Jesus. You must bow before King Jesus. Psalm two says, "Kiss the Son, embrace the Son, embrace King Jesus." You need a Savior, and the only Savior is the Jesus whom you're resisting. Young people, I sat in a church for years resisting the gospel. I saw it at work in the lives of my my parents. I saw it at work in the lives of my friends. I saw the work in the lives of my brother and sister, but I didn't want to believe. I didn't want to follow Jesus. And Jesus had to break me, break my pride and break my arrogance and break my resistance. Jesus offers us salvation. Why would we get angry with him? Why would we get angry with one who wants to save us? And so, friends, chapters 1 to 4 describe, or 1 to 3 Describe the golden era of growth and blessing for the church. Chapters 4 to 6 describe the church under attack. Now which would you choose to experience? Which of those periods would you rather live through? Well thankfully it's not for us to choose. That's a good thing. It's for God to choose. But look at the encouragement for the church under attack That you see in chapter 6 verse 7. What happens during this period of attack? This period of hostility? We read. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And look at this. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Satan is very busy, but God's word is preached. The Holy Spirit acts and hard hearts are softened and enemies of Jesus become disciples of Jesus. Jesus said that he would build his church. He said there would be opposition, but friends, that opposition will not prevail. And so may these truths give us boldness as we labor to build the the church of Christ in a hostile world. Amen.